Okay, we're going to go to Matthew 5 today, and uh, we are going to look at this idea of payback. So if you have a Bible with you, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to go, and we're going to look at a, a pretty big chunk of Scripture, a really dramatic chunk of Scripture, something that has been taken to various degrees literally over time. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to actually start at verse 38, and we'll wind up down at verse 47. And we're going to talk about payback today. So it takes my mind back to when I was uh, maybe five or six years old, Christmas time. I, I had received a really wonderful gift from my grandparents. It was a real guitar. Now, I was only five or six years old, so I don't know how real it was. But it seemed very real to me. It was wooden. It had strings on it. You could like turn the strings tighter and looser and play that thing. I was all about how cool I was going to be, you know, six-year-old Mark playing guitar. Can you just picture that? Now, my, yeah, me either. My brother, 10 months younger than me, also got a guitar, but he was only like four. So he got a Winnie the Pooh job, you know, it, it was like metal and it had a little crank thing on the side of it that played a tune when you cranked it. Not a real guitar. Like mine, cool. His, not so much. Now, I don't know exactly how this, my, my memory's a little hazy on this, probably for good reason, but we were playing outside and something happened. Somehow, I wound up landing on my brother's guitar. I don't know, I was jumping off a swing or doing some acrobatics or, you know, something amazing, I'm sure. But somehow, I landed on his guitar and devastated. It was broken. Of course, being the wonderful child that I was, I turned to my brother to say how sorry I was for breaking his guitar, how very sorry I was. Now, I wasn't that sorry because I didn't consider it a real guitar, but I told him I was very, very sorry. My brother did not say a word to me. He just moved on with life. And so what I found out is a little bit later on when I wasn't looking, he went and found my guitar and plucked all the strings off of it. We call that payback. Just imagine for a second, before we even go on, just imagine what my life would be like if I could play guitar. I mean, I, I don't have a lot of regrets in life, but that might be one of them. As a matter of fact, right after that, I, instead of guitar becoming a cool guitar player... I became an organ player. I had six years of organ lessons, yeah. A cool factor of zero. <laughs> Regrets in life, right? What I hope happens today as we sit and talk through what Jesus says here is kind of like this. I was driving down the road this week, and as I was driving down the road, I was behind this car that could not figure out whether they wanted to be on the gas or on the brake or somewhere in between. Been behind this car? There might be a whole fleet of them out there, numbered and everything. And I was behind this car, and I'm so tense because I don't know if the brake lights are coming on. Sometimes they were accelerating with their brake lights on. I don't know how you do that. They were going faster, but the brake lights were still in my face. And so I'm so tense about, like, are we going faster? Are we going slower? I'm trying not to crash into them. I'm trying to stay far enough away, but I can't even... Like, get my head around how you drive like that. Myself, as a driver, because I would consider myself a superior driver. 
I like to be, you know, smooth at an even pace. I like to just, just coast down the road so that it's just like gentle clouds that we're riding along instead of all this, you know, stop and go and, and, and crashing people into the dashboard and stuff like that. So as I followed this car, I got more and more tense. And suddenly I realized that the road had changed from a one-lane road to a two-lane road a while ago. And I'm still behind this car, like riding on edge. So I just went out to the other lane and went around and just kept my own pace, which was like immediately all the tension is gone. And I kind of think, as I, as I thought about that this week, I tell you that story because I was thinking about getting ready for today. And I thought, how often is, do we in life live like that, where we let someone dictate our responses? We put someone else in charge of our life, and we think they're dumb. We think they're wrong, but we follow them. And probably one of the biggest places we do that is in payback. When we are wronged, we try to point out their wrong and how awful they are, but we let them take the lead. We let them dictate what we do. Maybe emotionally we get drawn into to reacting to someone and we wind up being more like them than less like them. We wind up allowing them to set the pace. And responding to them throughout instead of doing what we think is good and right. Jesus, through this Sermon on the Mount, this first chapter, has given us several examples of how we are not to be following the world. We are not to be like them. We are to be different from them. We aren't supposed to be normal people. We are not supposed to be people who embrace anger or lust or dishonesty. We are, in fact, like we talked about last week, to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. But I can think of no more clear example of how transformed and different we're supposed to be than what Jesus says here about responding to people who don't treat us well, about this idea of payback. Because it is normal to hate someone who hates you. It is normal to stand up for yourself and make sure no one pushes me around. That's normal. Jesus says, normal is overrated. Don't be normal. He says this, I want you to be different. And I want you to be different in a way that will blow your mind. And so as we read these words today, I wonder like throw this question out at the beginning. What would it take for Jesus' words here to become precious and life-giving to us? For us to get past the, I don't even know how to do that, to the place where we're like, teach me, Lord. Show me. All right, so start with me. Just at verse 38, this is the setup for the first of kind of the two chunks of things we're going to talk about today. Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, and tooth for tooth. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase or that saying, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. It is a summary of payback. You hurt someone, you get hurt. This was a direct quote from Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. In the Jewish vernacular, it was called the law of retribution. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It was, when you do wrong to someone, justice must be done. And justice is, they suffer how they made you suffer. It was, in Israel, 
like the official legal process for addressing wrongs and loss. Instead of just leaving it up to people to do whatever they thought they should do, there was a justice system where, you know, you're supposed to, when you are wronged, entrust that uh, like wrong to the law, to the authorities, so that they could do what is right. Not take vengeance yourself, but to give it to those that God has placed in charge. It was actually meant to restrain an outbreak of violence that feeds on itself. I don't know if you've ever witnessed that idea, but there are times where someone does something wrong and then someone else responds in wrong and then someone else says, oh yeah, let me show you how much more, more wrong I can be than you. And then, oh, well, let me try to up, one-up you. And then there's this vicious cycle of evil. We call it America. I mean, how much more violent and angry and hostile can our world be than it is right now? It's an awful thing, and it's because there's this principle, this norm of payback. We're going to make sure that no one walks on me. The law was actually given to discourage people from thinking that they could harm others without consequence and to restrain that vigilante thing. Well, I'm going to make sure that no one messes with me. The authority and power of the state government by God was given to make sure that justice was administered fairly, especially to those who would otherwise escape it because they were powerful or they were rich. Justice was to be done even if you had advantages that others didn't. But by the time Jesus is talking here, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth was a phrase that didn't really mean what it said. They didn't take it literally anymore. What they did is if you wronged someone, you paid them back monetarily. There was some kind of a, a monetary fine. So if, you, if you, someone lost a, a hand or something like that in an accident, they didn't take the other person's hand. They came up with some amount of money that they paid back. So they didn't take it very literally in, in the way that the punishment was done, but they did take it very literally in that they believed that law was a mandate for vengeance. They believed that God had told them that someone had to pay. And Jesus said, you kind of missed the point. You really went right past what God was trying to point at to something totally off base. Because they believed that it was a sin not to make someone pay. Because the law had said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So Jesus starts to give examples of what he believes and what he wants us to know that that law was about and how that law would be fulfilled. So, keep going with me. Verse 39 down to verse 42. It says this, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus has this amazing way of not allowing us to just get stuck in theological debates. Debates over the rules. That's what this culture was famous for. Debates over the rules. Well, what exactly is the right rule? Because if we have the right rule, we'll make sure everybody keeps the rule and then we'll be okay. But Jesus has gone through and deconstructed rule after rule, hasn't he? You have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I tell you, if you are angry with someone, 
You have heard it said that you should not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you live in lust, you have heard it said that anyone who divorces must make sure the paperwork's right. But I tell you, So Jesus is deconstructing, and he comes to this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, but I'm telling you, here's the way you should be. If you want to be a part of the kingdom, I have a different way for you. And this way is not about knowing more. It's not about being more right. It's about living different. It is not a debate that you can have on social media. It is a life that you are called to live. Well, what difference can one person make? I don't know. Ask Jesus. We are called by faith to live differently. And as we live differently, to change the world. Not because we win the argument, but because we believe so deeply and so powerfully that we live by what Jesus says. And I pray that we as a church and we as individual believers would respond to what Jesus says because Jesus is calling us to a different way. It isn't one that comes naturally. It is one that we have to learn and one we have to choose. Because when you are betrayed, when you are hurt, when you are taken advantage of, it throws you off balance and you fight to get back to your balance. When you are surprised or overwhelmed by the pain in your life, you start to lose the confidence in your own ability to tell whether you actually are in danger or not. It's one of those phenomenons that when when life is really hard or someone has done you really wrong and you didn't see it coming, it makes you wonder if you'll ever see anything coming. Am I in danger right now? I didn't think I was before. And then I was. Turns out I was. So you start to lose confidence and you're so off balance that you're trying to find a way to get back on your feet, to get your balance again. And so you gravitate towards this idea of getting back on top, showing that you are strong, a desire to pay back. But the thing about revenge is this. When you have a mindset of revenge, you generally, though it is the seed of it, the start of it is injustice. I want to make justice happen we very quickly lose track of justice because we don't really hold on to our concern with being equal. We want to be stronger. We want to make them pay more. We want to be in control. And the only way to be in control is not to balance the scale, but to overbalance it on our side. That's what humanity does to us. And that's why Jesus says this idea of payback is not something for the people of the kingdom. Giving, you know, that, that idea of when, when I feel wrong, then I'm going to get you back and, and I don't get, get mad, I get even. Giving more than I get isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing in that mindset because I believe it will satisfy me. It will make me feel whole again. It will heal me. It will bring me back to where I was before I was harmed. But if you're a believer, the one we follow didn't do that. So I wonder what car are you following? Whose lead are you taking to heart? And so if I had to summarize what Jesus is teaching here, I would say this. He's telling us your rights are not your highest purpose. Your rights are are not your highest purpose. You are made for far more than just holding on to what is rightfully yours. 
Have you ever considered that? I mean, I know this is America. But have you ever considered that your rights are not the biggest thing in your life? They weren't for Jesus. Sometimes we hold on to our rights so much that we destroy ourselves. I know people who, who really believe they have the right to privacy, and they hold on to it so much, they value it so much, they prioritize their privacy so much that they wind up isolated from anybody and anyone that could possibly make them alive. You know what I mean? That, that right, hold on to that right. When you're wronged and you want to see the offender punished, I have the right to see them punished, but then you let bitterness take over. That idea of vengeance, that, that, that mindset of someone who is just the victim of loss, and that's what you identify as for the rest of your life, we lose more than we counted for. And so Jesus says, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. He says, do not resist an evil person. In other words, he says, your job is not to stop people from taking advantage of you. He's not saying that you never do it. What he's saying is, have you ever considered that that might not be the right response in any given situation? And so he starts with this thing that I think, guys, this would, be, this would be big on your list here. He says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Now the idea there is, slapping someone on the right cheek, I don't, it's a little bit of geography and positioning and all that stuff, but the idea is, in order for someone to slap you on the right cheek, they would have to do it with their dominant hand with, with a backhand. And that was an insult. That was a you're nothing. I am so much, what are you going to do about it? Guys, you with me? What are you going to do about it? And the thing inside of you says, oh yeah? Jesus says, what does Jesus say to do? Turn the other cheek. What? I had a Sunday school teacher who told me, you know, Jesus says that to turn the other cheek, but after I turn that other cheek, man, all bets are off. <laughs> Think he may have missed the whole point. Because the idea is that your job in life is not about making sure that you are safe, making sure that your honor is stuck up for. Your job in life is much more. You're living for the kingdom and for the king. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Why? Well, he's not saying that you have no role in speaking up on evil or trying to, to stop evil from happening. So let's say, for example, you find that, that a thief is broken into your house. Without a doubt, you are called by God as a reflection of God's role as father and protector to protect your home and your family. If you're a police officer, you are called to thwart those who do evil and bring them to justice. This is not a rule. Jesus is not giving a new rule. One size fits all. Always do this. What he's talking about is a heart that values people and a heart that is living for something more than this life and more than my reputation and my honor. He's speaking in a system, in a society, where the honor system is the big thing. It was not uncommon for rich people to want everyone to see how rich they are, and that was thought to be a good thing, not a bragging thing, because it was an honor system. One of the worst things you could do was bring dishonor on your family. There are societies like that in the world today. Jesus is speaking to them, and so he starts off with this idea of someone who has dishonored you, and you have the right to justice. You have the right to stand up for yourself. And Jesus says, would you let go of that right? 
He's going deeper than the action to the heart. And he's saying, when you are part of the kingdom of God, your heart is transformed, not because you have tougher laws, but because you live for something else. And so this idea of turn the other cheek has become a phrase that sums up this teaching, that that this insult, you do not find a way to overcome that insult by paying them back. Instead, you choose a degraded, a vulnerable position, not because you have to, not because you're not strong enough to stand up for yourself, but because, here's the key, you believe following Jesus is better. Better than getting them back. Your flesh doesn't believe that at all. Jesus says, but that's what I did. Do you think I was right? Turn the other cheek. I guess the question is, what would you be willing to lay down your rights for? Would you be willing in some scenario to suffer disgrace for something, for anything? Or is any time that someone insults you, you are absolutely compelled to stand up? Jesus says, you have a higher purpose than making sure that people respect you. A higher purpose than defending your honor. In marriages, I will tell you, this is a big deal. You have a higher purpose than making sure people respect you and defending your honor. We call that winning the fight. Too often we win the fight, but we do more damage than we ever estimated. Turn the other cheek. Then he goes on and he says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Generally, most people in that culture had two garments, an inner garment and an outer garment. The outer garment, what's called the coat here, was more important. It was your bedding and it was also when the elements got got rough, it was your protection against the elements. So Jesus gives a scenario here, a legal scenario, where someone finds a way to gain the power or the right to demand your inner garment. It was kind of against the law to take someone's outer garment. So you would sue, and, and if you, in this scenario that Jesus is giving, they find a way to say, you owe me your inner garment. You can keep your outer garment, but you owe me your inner garment. Jesus says, go beyond what you are forced to do. Give them your coat too. Why would Jesus say that? Give them more than you are forced to give them. Jesus is saying to them, Remember we talked about how people are more important than stuff? I know this is Christmas, so this doesn't always fit with everything that we're doing, but people are more important than stuff, right? I mean, if your Christmas isn't as big and you don't have as many gifts to give as you would like to, but you have people that are around you that are really valuable people in your life, you've had a really good Christmas, haven't you? But we don't always feel that. But people are more important than stuff. And so Jesus is talking here about you know, this idea of our, our desire, our natural instinct to want to win and hold on to what we have. And, and Jesus is saying to us, you are made for a kingdom where there are higher values than what you own or what you can keep. You are made for a kingdom that isn't all about the scorecard of how much stuff do I have and making sure that I can keep everything that belongs to me. Being stronger than others isn't something we value in the kingdom. We value people. 
And so there's this idea that someone wants something from you, but you value them as a person. Even though they're your adversary in court, you want them to have more than they deserve, more than they ask for. You keep going with this theme in verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Now he's getting really rough because it's not just an adversary in court. Now he's talking about the hated Roman soldiers who lived, you know, walked around and and did all kinds of things in Israel because they were occupying Israel. And Roman soldiers had the right at any time to demand that someone carry their equipment for a thousand steps, a mile, which is where we get the word mile from, a thousand steps. You were able, and it was probably the time outside of a battle or war where Roman soldiers were the most despised because at any time when they were tired of carrying their gear, they could look around at any citizen, any person, and say, you, come here, carry this, a thousand steps. And that person had to carry it for them, a thousand steps. Jews hated this. They were the children of the Most High God, but they were treated like slaves and servants, humiliated with no say over their own lives, their own bodies. And so their liberty, being temporarily taken away, hurt their pride and made them despise the Roman soldiers. So Jesus says to them, if someone compels you to go one mile, do what? Go with them too. Give them more than they have the power to demand. Be gracious, be kind, be more humble and helpful than you have to be. So Jesus says, citizens of the kingdom, give more than they have to give. Someone asks you to go one mile, go with them too. Now I'm asking you, is this how we live? Do we give more than we have to give? Do we value the kingdom more than what we can own or keep? Are we free from the the natural reflex of demanding that people respect me and making sure that everyone thinks the right way about me? Jesus says, this is how it is in my kingdom. Give to the one who asks. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow you. Generosity is a characteristic of the people of the kingdom. Why? Because our king has been so generous with us. How could, if we follow him, how could we be stingy? Behold, the love the Father has lavished on us. The exceeding riches of his grace poured out on you. How could we be stingy when we have been the recipients of so much? We are saying in prayer huddle this morning, if you won the lottery, if suddenly you had... $500 million. What would you do with it? Right now, without the money, I know what you say. Well, I would help people. Right? I would help people. what, What can I do with $500 million? I would help people. I would find people that were in need and I would help them. Do you realize you have something so much more valuable than $500 million? Help people. Be generous. Because he has been so generous with you. Children of the king, this is how we follow our Lord and our Savior. Children of God are generous people, valuing the ability to actually help others over the chance to keep more for ourselves. But then Jesus gets to probably the most shocking statement of all. 
So pick up with me verse 43 down to verse 47, and he says this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. We read these words. You have heard that it has been said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. This is their norm. This makes sense. Actually, it's a little bit of a distortion. The first half of that verse is from Leviticus 19.18. Jesus quotes it as the second greatest command. Teacher, tell us what the great command, greatest command is in the, in the law. Jesus says, love the Lord your God. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He takes that from Leviticus 19.18. But what they did is they said, well, the, the, the law requires us to love our neighbor, but it means we should also hate our enemies. It only tells us to love our neighbor. So, by implication, it's telling us we should hate our enemies. So they quoted it like it was Scripture. Love your your neighbor, hate your enemies. Jesus says to them, I tell you, love your enemies. Now, if you're sitting there and, and some face, some scenario pops into your head and you're like, love your enemies, what does that even mean? I'm telling you, you're in good company. Because the, the crowd that Jesus is talking about is going, what? This is not something that you and I can do. This is something that God does in us. As we follow Him, as we give ourselves to Him, as we allow ourselves to be His children. Love your enemies. It said, hate your enemy, singular. Jesus says, love your enemies, plural. Challenge ourselves on what this means because what it does is it says now what is love obviously love is not a feeling if someone hates you and you're going to love them you're not going to feel warm and fuzzy right but you're called to love them i think we would do well to pursue that in our lives lord teach me And he tells us where to start. Pray for those who persecute you. If you want to know how you can love your enemy, start here. That list of people that have wronged you, that are out to get you, that are doing harm in your life right now, pray for them. What kind of prayer? Oh, I'll pray for them. (laughs) Lord, you know that person. Get them. What Jesus is saying is pray for their good. Pray for God to open their eyes. Pray for them to know grace and mercy. Pray for them to find forgiveness, to find peace. Pray for their souls to be healed. Pray for them. Now, you don't have to feel it to do it. But as you do it, here's the awesome thing that happens in prayer. We think prayer is about us twisting God's arm to get what we want. This this prayer, Jesus is saying, 
This is about God drawing you into His heart. Then you will be children of your Father in heaven. This is about God changing me as I submit to His instruction and I pray for those who are out to do me wrong. When He says, children of the Father, they would be like, wait, wait, wait. That's not how God is. They would go back to the Old Testament and they would be like, God hates our enemies. He talks over and over again. Books like Obadiah and Amos and Nahum. He talks about wiping them off the face of the earth. And when we messed up, God came and punished us. We're still dealing with the punishments of our sin. So God hates His enemies. God hates our enemies. And Jesus says, no, He doesn't. Jesus says, no, He doesn't. I want you to understand, God pursues those who are lost. The prophets that God sent to Israel were sent to call people who were far away from Him. Remember the story of Jonah? There was a country, Nineveh, it's the capital of it. He goes to that city and he cries out against them the judgment of the Lord. He didn't want to go because he knew if he goes and they respond, God will pull back. He didn't want God to pull back because that's the enemies. And so we find at the end of the book of Jonah, Jonah sitting there on a hillside all bitter about some plant. And God says, you care so much about the plant. What about all these people that I made? What about all these people out here? Why don't you care about them? Jonah's answer in his soul was, they're your enemies. They're our enemies. You're supposed to hate them. Jesus says, even the Old Testament shows you that God loves those who are far away and pursues them and gives an opportunity. All of those prophecies are a call for those people to repent, to turn from their wicked ways. All of those calls through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel are a call for God's people to turn around from where they're going. It is an evidence, although it sounds harsh and horrible and overwhelming, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. You recognize he could have just done it. Why did he say all that? He said it so that they would recognize an opportunity to return because of the grace of God. And so God, Jesus gives a simpler example. He says, God pours out goodness, the just and the unjust. The sun rises on all. The rain comes on all. For an agricultural people, that was the basis of living and surviving. Without the sun and without the rain, you don't get crops. You don't have livestock. Everything dies. It's the difference between ruin and riches. And God pours out this priceless gift for free on those who obeyed and those who didn't obey. And He says, Your father's example is for you to follow. Not the rest of the world. Well, I treat those who are good to me. I treat them well. Those who are bad to me, I make sure that they pay. That is not the example of your father. And then Jesus concludes with this, this insult. He says, listen, the pagans and the tax collectors, are those the cars you're following? Because they do what you think God tells you to do. You love those who love you. The tax collectors do that, and you hate them. And you greet only your own people. You treat others like they don't exist. Even the pagans do that. The dirty Gentiles, that's what they do. Are you going to follow them, or are you going to follow your heavenly Father? Children of God, this is Jesus' message to you and I.
Who are you going to follow with how you treat people? How you hold on to your rights? How you love or don't love people who have harmed you, who have wronged you? I'm not saying, and Jesus isn't saying, you need to be close friends with everybody, even people who are dangerous people. But you should want good for them. You should pray for them. You should find what Jesus is talking about here, that your heavenly Father loves them, so you do too. In this Christmas season, we are reminded that Jesus came to die for those who were enemies of God. He literally loved his enemies to death. And I wonder where we got watered down as Christians, as followers of Christ, and let all that go. Do you love people like your Father in heaven? Do you love people like your King loves them? What work does God need to do in you for that to come alive? Maybe, just maybe, this is the long-ignored path to real freedom, real forgiveness, to peace and joy in the souls of God's people, to love like our Father loves, to let go of our rights like Jesus let go of His rights. Maybe if we got back to that, the church would be the church. Do we love our enemies? Do we pray for those who have hurt us? Are you fighting for your rights or would you be glad to entrust yourself to your Heavenly Father? What would it take for God to do this in us? I would ask that we together ask Him to do it. So let's do that. Let's stand together, bow before Him, and ask God to do this in us. Let's pray. Father, we come right now humbled, by what Jesus has said. Overwhelmed, not even really knowing where to start with this. But Father, we want to follow you. We want to listen carefully and take your word seriously. We want you to teach us, to shape us, to mold us, to show us. So Father, do that please in us. The people in our lives right now that are unlovable, Show us how you love them. Help us to learn how to pray for them. Help us to show them you by how we treat them. And Father, if we are stuck on holding on to what is ours, our reputation or our stuff or whatever, Father, help us to have the freedom and the insight and the eyes for the kingdom that makes it easy for us to let go of what you've asked us to let go of to live following the example of your Son. As we celebrate Christmas and generosity abounds, let us deep in our soul reflect the generosity of our God, our Creator, and our King. Father, lead us as we go from this place so that we will be salt and light in this world, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.